Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from 50 Ways to Kill Your Mammy star Baz Ashmoui about his new dramedy, billed as a mixed-race Irish two-and-a-half men centred on grief. Plimpsoul Productions' James Smith on becoming head of adventure at the wildlife documentary Outfit. And Tiger Aspects' Tom Beatty and Sandbox Kids' Ellen Solberg on the impact of artificial intelligence on animation. Irish television and radio personality Baz Ashmoui is best known for his role fronting 2015 international Emmy award-winning non-scripted entertainment show 50 Ways to Kill Your Mammy. Aside from the Sky series, he's hosted a string of others for national public broadcaster RTE and presented regular radio shows. Now he's stepping into his first major acting role for Faithless, a dramedy he also created and co-wrote. The story concerns a father attempting to raise his three daughters after a tragic accident, with some help from his younger brother, and is billed as a mixed-race Irish two-and-a-half men centred on grief. Produced by Media Musketeers Studios and Entourage Ventures, in collaboration with Grand Pictures for Virgin Media Television, the show will be distributed by Abacus Media Rights at MIPCOM. Ashmawi spoke to Michael Picard. I'm Baz, I'm Baz Ashmawi. I'm uh, the writer and the actor. I play Sam and uh, that's what I do. I mean, people um, people in Ireland would probably best know you as a, a presenter. So can you tell us a bit about your career so far and, and perhaps how you've landed, you know, with Faithless, which is your first sort of major acting role? Yeah, yeah. So so I, I'm best known in Ireland for being a, a TV presenter. I kind of do uh, a broad range of things from kind of, I've done like, documentaries which would be very kind of um, you know extreme worlds living with uh, tribes uh, working on trawler ships to you know shiny floor I did it I'm probably best known for 50 ways to kill your mammy where I did like adventure travel which I did for Sky so it was me bringing my mother around the world doing all the extreme things that I had done like the highest skydive in the world uh, the intercontinental rally across the desert really cruel horrible horrific stuff to do to to the woman who brought you into the world so that's my level of appreciation for people in my family uh, full stop and we were very successful with that it went around the world we were very lucky to win an international emmy for it and i started off a lot of people don't know as an actor i did a lot of theater and uh, i was at that crossroads in my life where i was like do you want to do theater for very little money and you know the big acting jobs weren't coming in or would you like to you know do this adventure travel show this comedy travel show and that's that's kind of where I started off and oddly enough that was the thing I ended up like 20 years later doing this huge show with my mum that was um, successful but but Faithless while I was doing because um, presenting and acting can be very similar you know you're you're plotting out scenes and you know you have um, it's kind of scripted in a way you're thinking about gags you're thinking on your feet a lot and while I was doing 50 Ways to Kill Your Mammy is when I started thinking about Faithless first and that's that's a long time that's back in 2014 20 I think that was about 2016, 2017. Wow. So that's just, uh, you've just described a seven-year period, which is, I guess, the the standard development cycle for a scripted series, isn't it? Someone said to me, and I was like, get off. 
off. It's me. I love it down in six. Because TV, I walk into room, I pitch. I'm making the show in six months a year. And th this, I was like, yeah, I'll be making it next week. And then I got to the stage where I was like, fucking hell, if I don't make this soon, I'm going to be playing the granddad. I'll be play playing Mo in this thing. Do you know? I was getting really panicky. And thanks to, to Michael coming in and uh, Michael Garland coming in and being um, being the man and getting it going and the guys at Movie Musketeers, you know, it, it became a reality. But there was a small period there where you think, oh, maybe this isn't going to happen, you know? Yeah, yeah. The tough bit is when they want a second series and then you have a year to, to make it after having a longer period to do season one. So uh, that's something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. Well, fingers crossed, you know, that's always <laughs> a dream, you know, but um, but it was a big learning curve, you know, it's it's TV. I thought I knew everything about production and um, it's a different beast. Uh, film is a, a different beast to TV. I, I'm very reckless. If I want to jump <laughs> off something or if I want to do a stunt, I can just know as long as I sign a waiver, they'll let me ride a bull in Texas. You know, there's no problem. While, while Michael's a bit more nervous than that, he, he won't let me do anything. <laughs> Yeah, and so, so was Faithless a chance to scratch sort of a, an acting itch or had you been thinking about writing something more scripted or was it a kind of a, a mesh of, of the two aspirations that you had? To, to... If I'm 100% if I'm <laughs> honest, it was it was really I wanted to act again. And I was like, no one is going to give me an acting job. It's going to be really hard. Or if it is, I'll get like three lines. And, you know, I wanted something to get my teeth into. And also, it, like when I was acting, a lot of the times I always remember back, it was always was like Don Pedro in some play. It was always some ethnic part. And I live in Ireland and there wasn't at that time, you know, I was going for these Irish, classic Irish play and I just was, was getting nothing, you know. I was just getting no parts. And I was like, I'm going to write me a part that only me can play. So I'll get a half Egyptian, middle-aged, graying character, you know, like I'll just make it so So the casting agent, is, there is no one and I'll just appear and go, actually, I'm just perfect for this. So that's kind of what I wanted to do. And then the writing happened. And that that surprised me how much I loved that. That was really um it was it was amazing. It was amazing to see those people come to life when when you give those words to talented actors and they do their thing with it. That was for me, that was probably the biggest rush of the whole thing, you know. Yeah, definitely. And so I mean, just introduce us to Faithless and, and tell us a bit about the story and, and Sam, who's the, the character you play. How do we meet him and, and what does he yeah. kind of get up to across the six episodes so I would if I was to give you like an elevator pitch or a tagline I'd probably say it's a, a mixed race Irish two and a half men with um, yeah on grief that's what it's basically about it's basically about a man and his wife at a very turbulent stage in their in their relationship and suddenly this tragic accident happens and he's left raising three daughters and I think Sam in my head was always creative being a creative is hard so Sam is, is is a writer who had one big hit and then it just never happened again and was kind of riding that tail for a long time and then just lost his mojo lost his his grow for life a bit and just faded away a little bit just fell into kind of middle age and just stepped out and all of a sudden he's flung back into it and has to be present and has to be a dad and a mum and everything and it's funny I come from a single parent family so this thing, this stuff for women is happens every single day it's not like but put a guy into it and it's 
like, oh, holy shit, <laughs> it's amazing, you know, like, which is so, so funny, isn't it, really? Because it's it's the comedy is in just that ability. I think to a certain extent, women are, are more capable under pressure like that, where seeing a man do it and then him relying on having his family around him. And that's where the mixed race thing comes in. But traditionally, it's just family going through grief. That's what it's kind of about. And him trying to pull his family together. And, and I mean, grief, obviously, is, is quite a heavy topic for a, a sort of dramatic comedy. Um, how did you want to uh, explore that idea while also, you know, I've been watching the show myself and it's, you know, it's very funny. There's it's a lot of slapstick kind of physical comedy. You end up in a bin in episode one. Um, you know, how did you want to find that line between the grief and, and those deep explorations? Of, of heavy themes with that comedy line. I always think that that is life. That is life. Like there's horrific things that happen and they can also be incredibly funny in an awful way. Like the, I think the scene that sums it up best is and it was a, it was something I'd heard about was him trying to tell his children the mum is dead you know which is a horrific thing you know like and he's sitting outside and he's psyching himself up to tell them this awful news and then when he goes in to say you know you know mum's dead he looks in his youngest daughter's eyes and he just bottles it he doesn't want her to feel that pain so he's, he's he delays it by saying oh you know actually mum's in hospital and she's really really sick and then the other girl's like oh well you know my, my friend's mum said mum was dead and he's like oh actually she is dead you know it, and it, it it it's just oh god let it end you know it's it's just making bad choice after bad choice and it's it's at the time it's not funny but it is fucking funny like it you know that to me that is funny so so it's I think when an audience is emotionally open when you when you when you feel laughter and uh, and you're laughing at something it's a great time to hit them with something poignant and I think it's trying to get that transition between you know and that's what dramedy is isn't it it's it's showing the drama but then showing the humor as well and that's why it's I couldn't tell you which it's more it's there's a lovely scene in episode four with Cormac and, and Sam where Cormac's done this horrific thing dressing up in a burqa and spying on him and all then they're having this big and it ends up being this really touching moment between two men because really it's just about a, a brother who's so sad that he lost his sister and he's afraid now he's going to lose the, the only family he knows you know mm-hmm. so it's 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 that's the kind of that's the kind of gears in it you know yeah yeah definitely and so why was this something you wanted to write about when you're thinking of I want to act but I need to write something for me to act in why was this you know where did this idea for this story come from and how was it kind of perhaps based you know on your own experiences or what how have you drawn other influences into it i suppose i i probably like i haven't seen it before like I, i'm based in ireland here i haven't seen it i haven't seen i haven't seen representation i walk around the streets and i walk around ireland and and there's an old ireland and there's a new ireland and i i haven't seen that new ireland represented and it, 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 that isn't in any heavy messaging way but I, i'm just talking about if you come from a mixed race family like in real life i have a serbian wife i have a greek orthodox Serbian mother-in-law I have a Roman Catholic mother I have a Muslim sister my kids are confused as fuck like you know it's we are New Ireland that is what it looks like you know and I don't see it and I'm not trying to make a big deal of it I'm just saying this we are we are that this is this is Ireland you know this and and it's not just Ireland this is everywhere and and it's I, I always laugh at that like if you were to sit around a family dinner table of these different cultures mingling it's hilarious 
Like, it's brilliant. Like, like I always use the example of my mother-in-law and my sister, where I'm just sat in the middle, and my, my mother-in-law's like, no, yeah, I wonder why you don't have a man. You wear that thing on your head. Take that thing off your head. No man can see your hair. You know, you're just like, you can't say those things. But it's just that shorthand the families have when you've lots of different cultures. And it's kind of lovely. It's kind of it's kind of beautiful because it's just raw and it's just really honest. And it's and it's all caring as well. You know, it's 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 that shorthand. So I wanted to show that, you know, maybe some people don't have that experience, you know. So I wanted to show them and I, and I wanted it to feel, though, I still feel really Irish. You know, like it's that's the one thing that made me laugh. I remember going down to the mosque one day and um, or and. Uh, and there's a couple of guys I knew from there and they were they were they're Lebanese waiters <laughs> they'd always say Jesus Christ they always say Jesus Christ because it's such an Irish thing you know we, we just use these blasphemy of Jesus all the time but they it's just part of the language you know so so seeing these Muslim guys going oh Jesus me fuss or whatever you know and and I, that's what I wanted to show I wanted to show show what it's like just living a living and being um, you know in that type of family in Ireland and that's what's amazing when I spoke to all these actors they all related to the script immediately because mm-hmm. if, if you're mixed race you've lived through this you know exactly what we're talking about it's very um, it's very familiar mm-hmm. and uh, and so you had this idea and and what was the process then of of getting a commission I guess did you start writing a script or had you were you pitching this idea around and, and building the production team to sort of then take it into the broadcaster how did that sort of process work yeah, yeah we danced around with, for a while and um, in the very early stages someone said oh we'd like to take the script but we'd, we'd like to change the main protagonist to a woman mm-hmm. I was like well unless I turn into this is fucking date fire that's not happening is it you know like you know, I wrote it to be in it so I was like no so I kind of held on to it and then it sat for a while and then and then myself and Michael uh, Michael Garland started chatting and he took it from there like I'd like to say it's something to do with it from there but I didn't really you know it was I just passed the ball to him rang him and annoyed him a lot chase them and you know and that's kind of what happens then you let people do it it's just, it's such a big beast it's such a big thing to get off the ground you know you have to find people who believe in the project and I think um, I think that's where we were lucky we found these people who were like Andy like Michael who were just believed in it who got it and said I haven't seen something like this I want to see more of this I like it you know and then getting their input on developing it the period we're talking about as well we had a, a little pandemic to deal with so did that hold things up for you or was there a point where you thought well this isn't ever going to happen now and and you sort of left it behind a bit or how did you know you navigate all these real world issues to get yeah. a commission well I suppose like to, to be honest that, that probably all played to an advantage for me in one way because mm-hmm. like I'm a first-time writer so like did I bullshit my way into it a little bit maybe like I was like I either write a pilot and then they're like you know I, that pilot changed changed 50 times and then it turned into you know the series and it became a thing and it just took hours and hours and hours of developing and and getting steers from people and all of a sudden you're actually even I was like I like this this is this is great like this is this is a nice show this is a this is a uh, something I'm really proud of and I'm not one of those oh you're great I pat myself on the back type of people usually but there was something in it I could see that there was something in it but it was a lot of 
lot of graft and work and you know um but but i learned during that process it was a great it was a, I, I couldn't have asked for a better process for me to learn how to do it because um, by the end of it i was like yeah it was it, i was i was flying through it you know but the yeah. first few took weeks and months to write a script and then see like getting notes that's the one thing that you get 25 pages of notes from people it's only 20 page script what you know and you, you just have to leave your ego at the door when you're a writer and take the steer from people and um, I, I just such good people around me to kind of help me through that first first time you know yeah what, what sort of notes did you get can you reveal any of the uh, the ways the story might have changed perhaps or, or other um, issues notes probably probably I, I I would I would always go I'll throw it out as far as I can and people will tell me to reel it in if it's mm-hmm. too strong in ways so mm-hmm. Michael Garland has an absolutely filthy mind so for him to tell me to reel it in is is probably saying quite a lot um, but yeah it was a lot of people keeping me on track because I'm I'm probably the looser end of language and things like that and and you know maybe there's a parameter of where we we, we saw it sitting in a in, on a streaming platform or in a schedule but the notes were very helpful in general they were just like it's just it's it's just really about every character feeling real and the world feeling real that's mm-hmm. what it's about you know and uh, and I think as it grows as the, as you watch the show it does uh, you get all these characters you 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 get into them and they all have their own uh, their own quirks and their own place in the family and were you writing on your own or you had co-writers with you sort of helping to, to do the scripts yeah there was other people that came in um mandy mckeown and stephanie preisner and they mm-hmm. came in as well yeah but, yeah um, and did you have sort of a was that like a writer's room dynamic that you had where you're chatting about character and story and uh, or was it a different yeah dynamic yeah you? yeah like we, we we chatted we chatted through the developments of the the characters and the story arc and all that yeah and um i think stephanie wrote one with me and then mm. mandy wrote two i think with me as well mm. and again it's they they're they're great yeah they're they were uh, helpful steers you know it's, yeah. uh, it's just to bounce ideas off people and and see what they can bring to the table but it's funny a lot of it sometimes it's hard because it's in your head mm-hmm. you get like yeah the, you know it's hard to lay off but but these are very creative people they're very talented you know? definitely and and while you're writing are you aware that you're playing Sam and, and that you'll have to say and, and do these things? Are you kind of thinking about that or do you try and block that out? I was like, I, was, I was like, I wrote my man, to, I wrote myself the straight man part. Why would I do that? And I gave all these great lines to other people. I was like, what was I doing? I was very selfless, right? I won't be like that next time. I'm <laughs> sure. But, but, but no, I, I was very committed to the writing of it. I wanted, I want, there were certain characters, I wanted them to be funny or to be saying something. Oddly, truly, like when I got to the end of it, I was like, oh my God, I wrote myself a depressed straight man part. It's, it's <laughs> That's kind of who he is. He's slightly narky, depressed, angry. That's that's who Sam is. But that's, that's his journey. That's his coming from grief to the reality of, oh my God, how am I going to pull this off? Like, I'm a dad and I have have a wife and I have six kids and I think I talk to myself in the mirror at least twice a day about how I can do it and pull through and I won't kill them you know it's 
it's a normal thing. So to do it on your own, and I know men that do run their families on their own, and I'm in all of them. I, I think they're amazing. It's like watching them even do, you know, football here and collecting piano. I'm going to take this one to the doctor and they're going to do a school run here. And it's like a beautiful mind. They're mm-hmm. right in the windows just trying to work out algorithms of how they can get through the day, you know, and feed them and work. And, and you know, women and men do this all the time and they do it on their own. And I'm in all of that. And I wanted, I wanted Sam to reach that point where you just like oh he's his heart's in the right place and he's trying his best to be a good dad you know mm-hmm. no definitely and so the scripts are done and you're day one on set i mean what's going through your mind when the thing that you wanted is in front of you and and you've got a star in a, a six-part you know prime time television comedy drama how, how are you feeling and and how was it it was <laughs> the first day was kind of nerve-wracking because there's all the the circus of what goes on behind <laughs> behind the camera, <laughs> and, uh, so there was lots of that going on. But it was it was very exciting. It's like what it's like birthing anything, you know. You can't believe it's happening, and and I was so happy with the cast we got, and especially like the actresses playing my daughters were just they're just unbelievable. They're just immense, and uh, so I was very excited. It was brilliant. Yeah, I know it was a it was a brilliant experience. Yeah, it, that first day is 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 a real kick. <laughs> yeah what was it like just for you to to be like you know i guess number one on the call sheet and and leading the show how did you did you feel a, a responsibility as, as such i guess even as it's your show as well even more so sort of and, and were you also sort of off screen looking at things and, and trying to be involved across the board i guess not just leading the cast yeah like i suppose like it's funny enough i wasn't nervous in the sense of because i'm used to being in front of camera and i'm used to being in high pressure situations so I wasn't I didn't feel nervous like that where where I felt the only thing I felt was like God I have to not be not be found out in front of all these really talented actors you know because they're really good and I was like what if they're really good and I'm not as it's that imposter syndrome thing everyone gets I'm, if I'm not as good as I think I am and all that but but it felt very natural I knew the script kind of so well at that stage and then the actors just add a huge lot to it so no I, I was fairly pumped about it but I suppose there's all always nerves whenever you put yourself out there with anything but um again michael is a great liar and he was telling me how wonderful i was and that matched exactly with my mum's notes on me so <laughs> in my head i was like i am great michael <laughs> my mum tells me i am and it's funny because i i'd someone uh, i work with my sister as well her name's mahish now and she's like uh she helps me with the scripts and everything and having her around as well was it was a great balance for me as well you know because she's <laughs> like look this is all this is where it's supposed to be you know we believed in it and like i say andy and michael and all these other people believe in it so it's just a matter of going out and doing it and declan then you know from a directing point of view he's fairly collaborative you know with regards to the vision of it. but but really to a certain extent i suppose you're you're handing over some of the vision you know that's yeah. probably the hardest part is kind of going you know someone else going okay we'll take this now and <laughs> you know we'll, we'll take it and you're like oh really it's like it's like handing your child to some stranger with a hat smoking a fag behind a camera and you're like well, what? You know, what? That's it, is it? I'll collect them at six. You know, it's um, but that's the process. That's the mm-hmm. process, and they all yeah. know what they're doing. And they do it very well. You know? Definitely. And then you're also an executive producer, so were you very involved, I guess, in in post production and through editing and and sort of all those other you know less glamorous jobs that we yeah, don't see much it's of. Well, it's, again, it's all the things of sitting down and watching cuts and 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 having a look. Like during the process, I wasn't looking at dailies and all that kind of thing. I wasn't mm-hmm. doing that. Would have, but but people were like it'll throw you 
was a marketer and I was like, you're probably right. Let's not do that. Um, but at the end, yeah, I was looking at the shows and we were sending in our notes and doing all that. But I love all that. I've always I've always sat in on edits of shows and, and I have an ability to detach myself from what I'm looking at. It's just from years of sitting in edit rooms, you know, mm-hmm. watching your shows. So so that wasn't a problem. No, it was it. The whole process was great, though, you know, <laughs> like, it was it was fun. Like, uh, like I always squeeze as much fun out of things that I can. And it was it was amazing. And it felt like I say the whole time, it felt like we were doing something just a little bit different, mm-hmm. a little bit off the norm. Um, and we all kind of believed in it and yeah. were laughing at it or felt, you know, it connected with it. So so no, it was brilliant. I mean, Irish drama sort of and comedy generally across the UK, but across the world really is, is selling really well at the moment. I mean, why do you feel that is the case? What is it about the Irish industry at the moment, Irish storytelling? And, and why do you think this perhaps, you know, has the legs to, to continue, you know, to, to bring audiences to Irish content? I, th- I think it's a very, it's just part of Irish people. It's a DNA of, of literature and storytelling. I think that's always in, it's funny, I was, do, I was, I was in Norway recently and I was, it's, it's, I was in Oslo and it, it, I was laughing because I was smiling at people walking down the street and they were, they were looking at me like I was flashing them or something. They, they were really uncomfortable with me. And then we were at a bus and we were trying to chat to people and they were really uncomfortable again with us talking to them and I, I couldn't quite work out what it is they don't do that small talk they don't they don't do that like just kind of uh, yeah it's that shorthand it's it's like this is my person and some people are like Irish people will talk the back legs off you and they will tell you stories and they will you know it's just part of our culture and creatively there's some amazing people here like you can see it in theatres you can see it in books you can see it in literature you can see it everywhere and maybe now with you know investment coming in some of those artists and creators are, are getting to do and show off their work and it seems to be have a kind of universal feel to it you know the likes of Sharon Horgan and people like that probably opened the door for a, kind of a reawakening of, of Irish kind of drama and dramedy and that kind of thing great and, and just before I let you go you said at the start you know that obviously this is a very it's been a very different television experience for you from presenting and the other work you've done I mean what are what were some of the challenges what are some of the lessons that perhaps that you've learned that you'll you'll take into your next acting or or script writing job it's just it's it's not different in a bad way it's just a different process you know it's just you just have to have switch a different part of your brain on and and be in the moment and not be tied to script and be loose and be able to play with the other actors so it's just a matter of centering yourself in a different way to presenting but I like I loved every single minute of it. it was for me it was exactly what I wanted it to be you know and it was to to get to tell the story that I wanted to tell and that's the only medium you could tell it in. you know it was just um, a fantastic experience and I mean, yeah it does leave you with that god I want to just do it again now you know it's I'm an adrenaline junkie anyway so you know it is that thing of a roller coaster you go god this is awful oh god it's great oh god it's brilliant oh so that's kind of what making a tv show is and at the end you look at your friend in the face and you go can we do it again yeah have you got other scripted projects lined up or i know I you're doing you have a few in the in the corners of my psyche yeah no they're starting to come together now again yeah so yeah. i think that's it it's opened that kind of door <laughs> well so that's that's exciting you know ITV Studios' own natural history maker Plimsoll Productions last month promoted James Smith to the newly created position of Head of Adventure. 
Previously exec producer at the company, Smith credits include National Geographic's Yellowstone Live and two upcoming shows for Nat Geo and Disney+, Plus, following US free climber Alex Honnold to Alaska and Greenland. He spoke with Neil Beatty about these latest projects, why they and his new job title embody a new direction for Plimpsoll as it explores Wildlife Plus programming, and how the firm is adjusting to the financial squeeze at streamers your new role as head of adventure can you tell me what that's going to entail and how it kind of fits in with Plimsoll's work as you know a kind of legend in the field of natural history program making yeah I mean it it it, for a start you know it's it's a real honor to be given that kind of job title I mean I've had a lot of different job titles in my career but this is definitely the coolest I would say like Indiana Jones or something, isn't it? I'm, exactly. My kid, my kids keep ribbing me about it, but um, but no, it's 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 great, and it reflects what I've been doing in the company for some years now. Which is, you know, I guess I've always, although I've worked across different genres, you know, I've made kind of anthropological films, I've made scientific films, I've made wildlife films, but they've always had people in the stories, and they've always been generally expeditions or going to very remote parts of the world, you know, and, and capturing that 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 kind of thrill of traveling through uncharted places and so that's something I've, I've just done over my career from the start really and i mean it's nice you know i think that me being given the job title is just a reflection of what we want to do as plimsoll we've we've very much established the company as a, as a kind of global leader in kind of premium natural history but we're aware that lots of uh, channels lots of buyers are really interested in complementing that kind of blue chip natural history with with stories that involve people and that's something that i've that i've always done and you know therefore you know if we're traveling to these remote parts of the world it it just has this this allure this this pull of adventure you know but yet along the way we're learning about threatened environments we're learning about vulnerable species you know we're we're capturing the kind of magic of the natural world as well as taking the audience on this kind of vicarious adventure sure and do you see that the kind of mashup of those two genres as being very much 50-50 or does the natural history element have to be a little bit more subtle with the adventure stuff first and foremost I think it just depends on you know who your characters are in the adventure, you know where you're going, etc. I think it can it can really vary. I, I think of ideas, and I can't obviously give you lots of detail of the things that I'm working on, but some of the ideas that we're pitching at the moment, it's fifty fifty. Um, as you know, you know we've been working with Alex Honnold. In fact, I'm just back from an expedition in Alaska with with Alex. Where you know the the adventure was probably ninety percent, and the kind of natural world, and that they travelled through a rainforest and learnt about the kind of threats to the Tongass National Forest, which is in southeast Alaska. You know, the largest temperate rainforest in the world, and and really important habitat for wildlife and for carbon and for the indigenous people that that live within it so that but it was it was alex and he really just loves to climb rock you know and so much of the film was about that and his push to get to this extraordinary mountain so i think i think it varies really we mix it up but i think the key thing is that you know the stories that i want to tell have this human dimension in it and i think for me adds a kind of layer of relatability adds a power to it you know you see people like alex honald responding to this natural environment there was you know we, we shot a key scene in the film that i'm making now of Alex in this old growth forest, which is truly magical. I mean, it's as magical as anything I've seen in the Amazon or in in the Congo or wherever, you know, these huge, great standard trees and he's looking at and his face is just like, oh my, you know, he's he's overawed. And that contrasts very powerfully with he'd been on this kind of long journey through very degraded, very, very kind of, well, overlogged, clear cut 
areas of British Columbia that he thought would be magical and beautiful and inspiring. And yet he just came across this kind of Armageddon of forest fires and sawmills and logging trucks. And so, you know, I think just having a person in that story just conveys, you know, the message, you know, kind of their emotional response to these different contrasting situations is so powerful that it just conveys that to the audience, I think, in a very powerful way. Yeah, especially if he's not, you know, technically from, the, uh, you know, a natural history presenting kind of perspective, is he? He is a free climber. I mean, yeah. I saw free solo and it absolutely terrified me. So, I mean, is that is that part of the attraction of getting someone like Alex involved that it brings a real jeopardy to the show? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I mean, we the first show that we did with him was in Greenland, um, and that was last you know last year, last summer. And you know, I think it because it's Alex. You know, he wanted to do a first ascent on the highest what what is probably arguably the highest unclimbed rock face in the world. And so that sense of jeopardy. I mean, this is not you know in TV we were often accused of false jeopardy. This is genuine jeopardy. You know, you're doing Rock climbing is one of the most dangerous things you can do. And to go to a very remote part of Greenland and climb a, a rock face that's never been climbed before, you know, where the quality of the rock is totally uncertain, just, you know, amps up the, the danger. So I think, and with, with someone like Alex, who is always pushing the boundaries, you know, I think it does hook in an audience and a different kind of audience. And yet, you know, we're traveling through this extraordinarily beautiful landscape, you know, across glaciers and ice caps and things. And that journey was, and that journey of discovery, how this place has been threatened by climate change was a key part of the of the story. So yeah, I think it I think it does help to kind of contrast things, mix up these genres. Sure, sure. And what what are your ambitions within your new roles? Uh, what what are you kinds? What are the goals that you're kind of setting yourself in terms of the content you pr- you're um, producing? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I guess with Plimsoll, you know, we're very much aligned to the streamers, you know, Apple, Netflix, Nat Geo, Disney. And although I'm focusing on them and I'm pitching ideas to them, you know, I want to also, you know, not forget the kind of UK broadcasters. I've got some ideas for Channel Four, BBC, Channel Five. You know, so I think, you know, ultimately in a few years time, I'd, I'd be pretty satisfied if we had a mix of these big standout kind of tenpole projects for the for the streamers, but also, you know, one or two returning series, you know, on a on a UK terrestrial broadcaster, that would be that would be lovely to have that mix really in our in our portfolio. Who do you think have been the kind of pioneer pioneers in this within this genre of adventure programming? I'm thinking more in terms of like the, the talent and the presenters. I mean, would you credit people like Bear Grylls and um, that? that those kind of guys yeah but but i think he's he's evolved and you know i think what you know obviously running wild is now you know is still going on that geo and i th- i think the way that he's he's adapted and 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 kind of refined his brand is extraordinary and i, I think particularly as well what's impressive about bear is how well he works in the in the us you know the, the americans have adopted him as one of their own basically you know and i think he can draw in very very high level talent um, I mean, I started my my career, you know, as a producer with Bruce Parry, who, you know, so we made a number of different series. And I think he kind of paved the way. I think Bruce had a, a had an authenticity that I think had been lacking before, you know, he came along. You know, he threw himself in and what you saw was what you got. There was no artifice with Bruce. And I think that, you know, I think the, the, the best kind of adventure presenters these days are, you know, like like that. They're in the moment. They're not kind of second guessing what they should say. They're just kind of taking the audience along with them in a very kind of authentic way. And that's certainly something with Alex that we we've got. You know, there's there's that, you know, I think authenticity is the best word, really. You know, it's not he's not a presenter. He's just doing what he loves and the camera crew are following him. And I think that that really is the secret to adventure programming, I think, is keeping true 
to the genuine spirit of an expedition and, and the, the truth of something rather than something made for TV. Sure. We've seen producers in this space kind of introduce elements of reality and even like extreme kinds of competition formats where they really make people suffer. And it's almost like contestants trying to achieve something for a prize. Do you see what you do as being completely different to that? Or would you not be adverse to introducing elements of that along the way? It's. I mean, that's a very good question. I think, I mean, if Plimsoll's strength really is it's diversity you know and if you look at our execs and and you know that the, the kind of our development team you know we have a very strong natural history department we have a very strong facts end department and a very strong documentary department and we all share ideas and so i'm quite often brought into pitches and into you know to, to help develop ideas and i'm not adverse to kind of weighing in on that it's not something that i would probably make or something that i would oversee but certainly you know there's a number of ideas which which we're calling kind of wildlife plus which blend natural history with adventure or in this kind of context, factual entertainment, you know, where there is more celebrity leaning ideas, more kind of competition formats, whittles or whatever, but that combine the, the high end cinematography and the production values of natural history with our kind of access, you know, our knowledge of of where the best places are to go and film sharks or where where's the best place to go and have a close encounter with a lion or a bear or whatever and, and kind of mixing it up. So Although they wouldn't be things that I would probably have under under my kind of umbrella, there's certainly things that I, I'm involved in, and I, I kind of see it as a real growth area. You know, I think everyone wants to be transported to the natural world, and you know, lots of lots of kind of broadcasters saying we want shows that look like Tiny World or your you know you, you a year on planet Earth, and yet we want to bring a sense of entertainment and fun to it too. And I think Plimsoll is uniquely placed really to deliver that. We have those skills within our company. Um, you know, to deliver that that kind of blend of of content. Let's talk about um, the, the streamers. You mentioned them a little while ago. I mean, are they still very much open to this kind of content? Because we all know that the struggles they've had in the last couple of years in economic terms. Um, are they still very much in the market for this kind of programming? Absolutely. I mean, Alex Honnold is, is the kind of face of adventure on Nat Geo, really. So, I mean, they don't really have hosts. But if they did have one, it would be it would be Alex. You know, he's so I think they're very, they're, you know, very keen for us to kind of keep bringing ideas with him. And we're developing, you know, other kind of ideas um, with other kind of, you know, elite athletes as well. Um, certainly Netflix is, you know, that's a, another key kind of buyer for Plimsoll. And, and there again, you know, if you look at the kind of feature docs that they've championed in the past, um, you know, that that's a very strong area for them and something that they want us, you know, again, to keep bringing them new ideas and new talent, you know. And so we're talking to to people who are not known, but, you know, as Alex wasn't known, but people who are doing extraordinary things. So that's a that's another area that that I'm focused on is finding these unknown people in, in perhaps fairly obscure kind of areas of, of sport, but who are just setting out to do something extraordinary. And if we can get in with them early, you know, you've got a film along the lines of, you know, 14 Peaks or Free Solo or Last Breath or, you know, those. So there's a lot of appetite for those films because they really do punch above their weight, I think, and, and draw in, you know, mass audiences and win awards, you know. So it's a kind of win-win for these, for the streamers. Yeah, yeah. And how, how do you go about financing your projects? Because obviously we're talking about these extremely ambitious international projects they can't be the cheapest to make how do you um, get the money together for them with i mean with alex honnold projects it was basically because he's a big name and and will you know especially in in north america you know we'll pull in a big audience we were able to to kind of go out to buyers and actually he was there on the pitches you know so that we were able to get those fully funded from the start um, we are looking at, at different kind of models, you know, as we all know, it's 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 tough out there, you know, financially and, and, you know, commissions have been hard to win. 
So we are looking at a, a range of different funding models, you know, co-productions. Um, we're kind of, yeah, thinking outside the box. I can't tell you too much about it. You know, come back to me in a few months' time. But we're, we're kind of looking into alternative ways. So you get, you know, certain seed funding from a broadcaster, but then you complement it with funding from elsewhere. So so that's something we're exploring at the moment. Sure. Roughly how many titles per year um, would you like to, to p- produce in your new role? Or is it more of a kind of um, quality rather than quantity kind of setup? Yeah, good question. Again, I... I think for me, you know, to, to be able to kind of have personal involvement, three or four a year would probably be a lovely number. You know, if they can be a mix of single films, maybe limited series. As I said earlier, you know, getting a returning series, I think for all of us is a kind of real goal because, you know, you put a lot of work into developing these projects. And if you have to keep doing it again and again, you know, it, it, it takes up a lot of time and energy. So so I think that's one of, you know, having a returning series that's there, you know, with a kind of established team that kind of looks after itself. That's one of my 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 kind of um, key goals. So, yeah, but three or four, that would be okay. that would be nice. And do you think adventure programming is a good way to reel in the younger demographic in that, that maybe they wouldn't want to watch a blue trip show about um, scientific based animal behaviours? But adventure programming might be something they'd be more interested in watching because it's exciting and high octane and all of those kind of things. I mean, absolutely. I think if you look at Alex Honnold, you know, he's not that well known in the UK or in in Europe you know in a kind of older demographic but young people because of because he's got 2 plus million instagram followers and 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 is you know doing extraordinary things and publishing on social media you know he's very well known in in the kind of younger age group and so yeah absolutely i think i think particularly as well for me something that i think works and resonates with a younger audience too is adventures with purpose and that's certainly what we've been doing with alex you know the greenland um expedition was you know our tagline was an adrenaline fueled adventure with science at its heart you know and so science and climate change science and trying to shed a light on what's happening in greenland which is going to affect all of our lives you know it's the front line for climate change I think is key. And I and I think, as you know, you know, kind of younger audiences are much more kind of switched on to, to the kind of in, environmental imperatives that we're facing. And so I think in, incorporating that sense of purpose into an expedition and to, into these adventure programs is, is key for hooking in the younger viewers. Good thing. Last question. What do you look into the near future? What are the opportunities and challenges in the um the adventure programming space? Um I I think the challenge the challenges are, you know, the 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 kind of, you know, just the financial squeeze that I think we're all facing. We're hoping that now, you know, with September, October, there'll be um more opportunities, you know, more kind of funding opportunities. And yet I kind of think that there's a lot of extraordinary people out there doing amazing things, you know, and I think also one thing that really helps, you know, it sounds obvious really, but if you can get big name talent attached to your ideas, then that, you know, sells an idea in itself, you know, and I think there's a lot more appetite from kind of A-listers really, you know, outside of the strike. I mean, the strike is putting a kind of hold on everything, but but I think a lot, a lot more of these kind of Hollywood stars want to make documentaries. Are, are kind of keen to get involved in kind of films, um, and you can see it happening. Whether it's Welcome to Wrexham or Limitless with Chris Hemsworth or whatever, so they're all kind of seeing their peers doing it. And so we're talking to a number of these kind of A-list A-listers as well. And and so that's, I think that's exciting. If you know that you can kind of build an adventure around a big name. I mean, I think that's that's. For me, you know, there's kind of two ideas that I'm kind of developing. It's either big name talent or someone who's unknown doing something extraordinary, you know. And those are the two kind of major buckets that I'm focusing on. I mean, we were lucky with Alex that he's both a big name and does extraordinary things. That's a, that's a kind of win-win. But 
But I think if you can get kind of one or two of the others, you know, and 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 re, you know, extraordinary stories, but in in two very different kind of ways, that's that's certainly what the buyers are looking for, and something that we're we're pitching. Sure. Do you get to go away on location with all all your projects as well? Will you be will you be traveling to to all these amazing places to watch watch filming and keep keep tabs on it all? I I have been fortunate to 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 get on location. You know, obviously for a number of years I was out there, you know, leading these expeditions and. And, and kind of directing things myself. But but now I, I take a lot of pleasure in putting together these teams of elite kind of expedition filmmakers. So I was in Alaska and I was like the kind of general behind the scenes, you know, coordinating things from from distance, really, you know, making sure that, that Alex and, and Tommy Caldwell, who was our kind of co, co-climber and co-star, you know, were happy. And, and, and the moment when everything felt it was in the right place, I kind of left, you know, I'd kind of let the team do what they do best off in the wilderness and and I kind of came back so so yeah I, I I'm fortunate I get to still you know travel to these extraordinary places and I you know I get to kind of put the team together and set these things up and plan them but then I do let go and 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 kind of trust my team to deliver the goods yeah that's the annoying thing about getting older is having to delegate all the cool stuff to other people <laughs> yeah although you know I kind of you know I'm kind of the wrong side of 50 and, and aware of my physical limitations and what these guys do you know and girls is pretty hardcore and i i'm aware that i would i would be the person at the back slowing everything down and i don't want to be <laughs> so, so kind of, um yeah it's 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 there's always there's always a heart and mouth moment well many of them actually making these kinds of shows but when they're off in the wilderness you know and kind of trekking through old growth forest or crossing crevasses or climbing at icefalls or indeed climbing the mountains or whatever you know it's my job then to kind of sit and, and worry and just make sure they're fully supported but but yeah i think i think my days of actually leading those expeditions are, are long gone and i'm, I'm <laughs> quite comfortable with that with That's, that realization yeah well head of adventure thank you very much for your time today you've you've given me a lot of great insight thank you yeah good to talk to you bye-bye bye-bye The swift rise of artificial intelligence has sent shockwaves through the creative industries this year, with the rise of ChatGPT placing the issue firmly at the heart of the US writers' and actors' strikes. While some see upside in the technology, with scope to bring efficiencies to the production process for example, others fear the implications for copyright, the creative process and job protection. The issue was among the hot topics at Cartoon Forum in Toulouse this week and Tiger Aspect Kids and Family Managing Director Tom Beatty plus Sandbox Kids Director of Content Ellen Solberg shared their thoughts there with Carolina Kaminska about AI's impact on animation. Uh, hi, I'm Tom Beatty. I'm uh, MD of Tiger Aspect Kids and Family, uh, part of the Ballinger Kids and Family group. So currently we're in production on 52 11-minute series. Uh, the first one is Super Happy Magic Forest, which is a fantasy adventure comedy for BBC, Rai, ZDF, Canal Plus, uh, ABC Australia. Um, and it's a fantastic uh, comedy with a fancy element and twists uh, with three main themes, questing, picnics and frolicking. Uh, the other 52 part of the series we don't announce till uh, October, so that'll be exciting when that gets announced. And then across Banerjee Kids and Family, we have about 16 series in production at the moment, so you know, really exciting time for the group. Um, can you maybe talk about how, how Tiger Aspect works with the other, with the other Banerjee labels? So uh, Tiger Aspect uh, Kids and Family is part of Banerjee Kids and Family group. There's uh, six uh, companies within the group uh, and we all sort of uh, use the sort of same services etc. We're all very separate uh, companies and stay in our sort of lane but there is also a cross collaboration. We're here uh, at Cartoon Forum working with uh, Zodiac Kids um, and Family France. Um, but, you know, Tiger Aspect, we do comedy with a quirk, and that's our USP and what we do. And um, 
Cartoon Forum, why are you here? What attracts you to the event? So we're here at Cartoon Forum just because, I mean, it's an exciting place. You know, you've got uh, fantastic projects. You get to see, you know, as well as pitching, you also get to see what's being pitched. So you can see what's in the zeitgeist, sort of themes that are coming through. Um, and it's just exciting to see, you know, that passion for animation for kids, for adults and family, just, uh, and, and just really, you know, see those uh, projects coming through to, to life. Um, right, so moving on to AI, um, um, can you talk about, you know, what, what, what you think about it, but also why is it such a, a hot topic right now? So AI, you know, it's, it's uh, an important discussion at the moment, you know, it's definitely a hot topic, uh, mainly because I think, you know, it's, it's so much to do with creativity and sort of the, the ways of uh, doing that faster or cheaper. But, you know, as, as a company, we have, uh, there are issues about it with regards to copyright and, and IP retention and those kind of things. So um, it's something that, you know, as, as Banerjee as a whole, we're at the forefront of digital and we really want to be part of that and, and be part of the decision making on that rather than sort of reactive to it. Can you give some examples of how it's being used in animation and in content production at the moment? Um, so, you know, we're not using AI at the moment. We're just sort of uh, looking what it can do or, or could be used for. And there are sort of functions I'm sure it could do. But, you know, what's really important to, to Banerjee and to, to Tiger Aspect Kids and Family is, you know, creative and talent-led so that the, the AI is not leading the creative, but the creative is using that AI as a resource uh, rather than the other way around. So looking a little bit more then at, at the benefits of using AI and the positives it can bring to the business, um, what do you think those are? So the positives of AI, you know, are still to be sort of found out, you know, really how they can to help us. But there are sort of functions I think they'll be able to do. But, you know, the, the side where it's not going to work for us is that the creative, you know, we're not going to have a scripted show or a script suddenly written by AI. That's not what we want to do. You know, we are here to sort of see how that can help us as a functioning thing. So obviously the concerns about AI are just, you know, the replacement of crew, you know, the animation, uh, speeding up the process, you know, those kind of things going on. But, you know, I think uh, there, are, there are bits, sort of those bits that are data or driven that need that AI to, 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 to look at things. But, you know, like I said, it's creative first for us. Um, you know, in Banerjee as a group, we have an AI fund, creative fund that we, we've put together just to sort of encourage ideas to really find out things about how AI could be used um, so that we can, you know, again, be at the forefront of that AI exploration. Do you think that it, it could lead to job losses? That's something that some people are scared about. So yeah, there's, you know, there's obviously lots of worry about AI. You know, there's you know, obviously about job losses, but uh, Tiger Aspect Kids and Family and Banerjee, you know, it's creator-led. We're not going, don't want to replace creative uh, jobs it's about those functions behind those that could be could be useful um, but you know it's it's we have this creative fund that we've uh, put forward for Banerjee the creative AI fund uh, there to encourage people to find ways and uses that uh, within the group is there anything more you can say then because um, about whether you're experimenting with it in terms of that fund so with Banerjee the wider group they are have set up this AI creative fund and there are ways that they want to use that and I think something like not within animation or kids at the moment, but definitely in the wider group of looking at old formats and how can they can refresh those. Also looking at uh, you know questions and quizzes and those kind of things that AI can help with. Um, so yeah, so there's being uses, but it's still early days, and we'll have this conversation in the next year as we progress and find out what AI can actually do. 
Are you aware, or can you give any examples of where you've seen AI used in a production that have intrigued you even, and maybe it's excited you, maybe it's scared you a little bit, but that's, that's sort of caught your attention. A couple of things that I noted were the Netflix in Japan animated short they did, the, was it the dog, the dog and the Boy? And there's also these Wes Anderson style trailers that have been made with AI. Um, is there anything that, that comes to mind that you've seen? I don't, I don't know firsthand what I've seen as excited, excited me about it. You know, you know what I mean? There's nothing really that I can talk about. I think that uh, I've gone, oh, that's exciting. But I think I'm more on that side of things of, you know, it's new, I want to play, not sure how to, and, you know, head down doing my job and get what we're doing in that sense, but knowing it's there as a use. I mean, I think for us, there's the possibility where we could use it, you know, really early days, you know, like mood boards and putting stuff together for pitches to, to find sort of elements. But again, we just want to be that creative led. And how quickly do you think that the use of, of AI in animation and content will progress? I'm not sure how fast AI is really going to work, you know, into, into the animation and the process. You know, I, I think, again, we are, I think we are really early on it, you know, and I think uh, there's this bubble of excitement and trying to find out what it does. Um, so I can't, you know, I haven't got a crystal ball to predict that, you know, it's going to be, you know, the forefront of what we're doing at X stage. I don't know. So, um, Again, early, early days, and uh, we'll see how it progresses. And then, and then sort of looking at kind of the influence of it, how much in the future do you think it, it, it will influence animation and content? So the influence of AI, you know, in the future, look, I'm here talking in 23 and, you know, still finding out myself as everything else. You know, we're getting a lot of support from the group on AI and, and information and encouragement on what we could do. But uh, in the future, I don't really want to predict what we're going to be doing. I think, uh, like I said, I think there's functions it could use and be done. It should be led by humans and not by the other way around. You know, it's creative first and talent for us first. Here's Ellen Solberg. Hello, I'm Ellen and I head up the content team at Sandbox Kids. So tell me about what's going on at the company. Yeah, so it's been a pretty busy last few years. We went through a round of mergers and acquisitions and so went from being four separate kids, SVOD platforms, to uh, forming Sandbox Kids, which is our umbrella company for Hopster, Play Kids, Curious World and Kidomi. And over the last couple of years, we've just been bringing these together. And really excitingly, we're launching a new app next month. Um, and we're carrying forward one of our bigger brands, Play Kids. And so we'll be launching Play Kids Plus. And this, it'll have some new features for us in that we are aging it up. So previously, our platforms have been two to six, two to eight. Um, and now we'll be covering the 2 to 12 age range. And another cool feature we'll have is that the, kit, the, the app adapts to the child's age. And so um, as the kid gets older, the content also changes. And so we'll be having uh, lots of video content, a ton of new games, podcasts, music, and, and bringing in elements from our previous platforms. Can you talk a little bit about a bit more about the type the types of content that kids can find? Talking about the sort of the, the TV side of things as well, like the series side of things, rather. Yeah. So um, in um, in PK Plus, we'll be covering this wide age range, um, and so for the youngest, 
we have a lot of we have a lot of content from our <laughs> our previous or, or our four existing platforms, um, and so a lot of this is just fun, uh, quirky entertainment content. But it's always been a focus for us to have something with learning value as well. And as the content ages up, there's a bigger focus on entertainment um, and there's more live action we'll be acquiring a bunch of new content and comedy also is just uh, a much bigger thing as kids age up and so yeah it'll be quite a variety and with your strategy you'll be acquiring from external from third parties but also producing things in-house as well? Yeah, most of our content is acquired. We do have uh, a fair amount of original content from both the Hopster side and from Play Kids, and they do really well for us. And so our, our hope next year is to produce some more content using those existing IPs. But due to, due to our budgets, most of our content is acquired. And so that's why it's great coming to these conferences and and you know, meeting lots of great producers and distributors and finding really cool content. And so why, why Cartoon Forum? Why do you come here? What, what, what is it that you like about the event? Cartoon Forum is uh, it's just a really uh, creative, relaxed, nice conference to come to. It's probably my favorite in the industry. There's, there's so many good projects. I love, I love going to the pitches and seeing what people are working on. Um, you, you also get an insight into what's coming up in the next years and uh, yeah it's just it's just a really nice place to be catching up with people and although we're not able to get involved in, involved in the production stage we have acquired quite a few things from here once they have been produced. All right so so let's move move on to AI so for a bit of context what what, are you, what do you think about artificial intelligence and, and why is AI such a, a hot topic right now? AI has developed very quickly. Um, I mean, when ChatGPT launched, was it earlier this year? Was it last year? I mean, things have just moved so quickly since. And within the industry, I mean, you're also seeing so many things just quickly change. And I think... I mean, I think there's a lot of exciting things that come with it. There's also some things that are a bit scary with it because we just don't really know what it's going to lead to. I mean, I think the positives are that it's a really powerful tool and it can speed up a lot of processes, it can optimize things, it can actually reduce the cost of productions and, and make things possible that maybe weren't possible before. But I guess the flip side is that it does have a knock-on effect on the, the creative talent working in the industry. And I think it, it, it is a shame if it goes that way, that it starts to replace all that talent. And I mean, my hope is that there's a way of um, using it as a tool and, and changing the way that we work so that we can improve our productions and not, and not just replace the, the talent that is there already. So, so you mentioned some of the, the sort of issues there in terms of you know, 
human creativity and, and, and what it means for that and if, it, if it's going to replace human creativity and, and how. So can you talk a little bit more about the, the challenges and the issues of, of um, AI and the threats that it might pose? Do you think, for example, that there is, that there is a risk that it, it might take jobs and it might push some people out of the sector? Is that something that, that you're concerned about? Could it happen? Yes, I guess that I guess that is the 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 fear with it that you, you're using something like like ChatGPT or or an AI software that helps you uh, with scripting and with with imaging um, and in in a lot of cases it might just stop there instead of being developed further and. Um, I think there is something really nice about the the human input in this. I think you know some of the some of the my favorite shows within the animation industry have that really tactile you know traditional feel um, and I, I guess it's finding a way to preserve these things and and within scripting as well I mean. Of course, these things will develop, but I think there is something really special to having, you know, a, a human do, be involved in this process. And you talked about it being used as a tool. So, so what are the the benefits of using AI and and the positives that it can bring to the business? I think the positives would be that it um, it speeds up the process and it makes production cheaper, and so. One thing that is really exciting about it is that it becomes more accessible to more people. And so you don't need to be an animation studio necessarily to make uh, nice animated content. And so it opens up a new world for uh, user-generated content, for example, and younger creators. And I, I think that is pretty exciting, seeing what could come from that. Can you think of any examples of where AI has been used in, in a production that, that you've seen that, you've, that have either made you think, wow, that's really good, or have made you think, oh gosh, that's very scary? If, if I think of things that I find unsettling, it's like the, the deep fake stuff and, you know, how, how content is being created that could look, or that, that does look very real, but isn't. And it's very easy to believe that it is. So you said that you're not really, you haven't really done much experimenting with AI, um, but will you be? Um, I mean, I think there's, there's not really much going back at this point when it comes to AI. It's only going to move forward. And I think, um, yeah, we just need to embrace it. And from, from our perspective, when it comes to content, the most important thing is that it is quality, that uh, it's it's vetted and fact-checked and and that it is something that kids will enjoy and also benefit from watching. Um, but but yeah, I mean we would be we are open to it for sure. Yeah. And how quickly do you think that the use of AI will progress? Oh, it feels like it's moving really quickly. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's, I mean, it's really hard to know, but it feels like already people with very little experience in animation, for example, are able to 
play around with it and the quality might not be great yet, but it is, it is changing very quickly. And so it, it seems to be moving fast. So um, where, where do you see the future of, of AI in the animation and, and, and content world looking ahead um, in, I don't know, 10 or so years time? How much influence do you think it will have? I mean, I think for the tool that it is, it will be used to optimize a lot of processes. I think productions will happen quicker and for less money, there'll be more content. There'll be more content from different people. I think we'll just be seeing maybe a bit more experimentation with it as well. And I, th I think it could lead to a lot of new exciting stuff. Ellen Solberg speaking with Karolina Kaminska. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Weddale. Thanks for listening.